0: So, let's then turn to God's Word together again this evening. Um, I'd encourage you to open your Bibles to John 14 uh, as we, we think about some verses in this passage now at this stage. And you'll know that over these Sunday nights, and this is a very interrupted series, by the way, but over these Sunday nights leading up to Easter, and Easter probably seems like miles away to you at the moment, but just the way things are working out in the next few weeks, um, this will just be an occasional thing. Are looking at these chapters from John 14 to John 17. Um, a couple of our Sunday nights this month will be taken up with um, saying goodbye to Brian, seeing him off the premises, if you like. Um, I will be away on a Sunday this month. Um, with Charlie and with David Mawinney. I'll be one Sunday night in Portugal next month preaching in Rogério's church in Singe, not preaching in Portuguese, by the way. Um, I'll leave him to do the translating. So, with all of these things happening, this will be a little bit interrupted, but over these Sunday nights when I'm preaching here, we're going to look at what is described as the farewell discourse of Jesus. That sounds like a very fancy title, but it does exactly what it says in the title. It is Jesus saying goodbye to His disciples. Goodbye in the sense that He is about to return to be with His Father in heaven, and He will go there via the cross and via the empty tomb. And maybe just a couple of things to say by the way, of background about these chapters, about this farewell discourse that we read here in John chapters 14 to 17. And the first thing to to say, and maybe this sounds like a very obvious thing to say in a church setting, but it's important to state that these are trustworthy words. Now, I'm not talking here about trusting the actual promises that Jesus makes, in the sense that we believe that these promises will come true. I'm talking about believing that the words that we are reading here tonight in John 14 are actually the words of the Lord Jesus in the first place. Because over the last 150 years or so, nearly 200 years now, biblical criticism has cast doubt on that. There are people who would argue, well, you know, those are not actually the words of Jesus. How could John, several years later, write down accurately these words, attribute these words to Jesus? No, this is John giving his spin. These are the early believers, the early members of the church, giving their spin in a way that will present Jesus to people in a way that will cause them to turn to Him. And what we have here is actually just exaggeration on John's part. And what I would say to that, a couple of things in response, one involves faith, the other involves logic. We're really being very logical, aren't we? We're really deep with our brains these days, and that's a good thing. The the faith thing is this, that we believe Scripture's testimony about itself that all Scripture is God-breathed, that these are words that were inspired by God's Holy Spirit. And then the logical thing is, well, this is the way my logical or my brain, I don't think I'm particularly logical, but this is the way my mind reflects on this. Why would the disciples not remember what Jesus said on that night of all nights? Think about the context in which these words are spoken and the timeline of that night, that soon after Jesus spoke these words to His disciples, they went to Gethsemane together. There they witnessed Jesus being betrayed, being arrested. The next day, He was put to death. So, if I think about my own life, there are countless, and I mean countless conversations that I have had with people down through the last 50 years that I have no memory of at all and I'm sure those people have no memory of those conversations, but there have been traumatic moments in my life, really significant and traumatic moments in my life, and I virtually remember word for word things that were spoken, things that were said in those moments. So, these are are trustworthy words, and we also believe and we say that these are important words so that if I put it like this, if you only had a very short time left in this world, well, who would you want to speak to, and what would you want to say to them? And you would have people in mind, and the people that you have in mind are the people who are most important to you, and the things that you would say to them are the most important things that they need to hear, whether that's telling them that you love them, or or telling them where the, the bank stuff all is, or, or whatever it is that might really be important for them to hear. You're not going to have your last conversation with a loved one talking about the weather, or talking about how Liverpool are doing, or Spurs are doing, or, or whatever else. And so, these are important words. And here in John 14, we have in this passage what is undoubtedly the clearest statement of Jesus' identity and His uniqueness. A statement that tells us that there is no one else like Jesus. There is no one else who we can trust if we want to be right with God, if we want to be in a right relationship with Him. And we know these words, but let me read uh, those words. You you will recognize these words of the Lord Jesus, who said in, in John 14 verse 6, I am the way and the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. And as we hear those words, if we were to ask that question tonight, how many ways are there to God? Well, there are two answers that can be given to that question. And one is an answer that will be given by people who are listening to the world And one is an answer that will be given by people who are listening to the Word. Here's how the world answers that question. How many ways are there to God? The world will tell us there are many ways to God. There are many paths, many religions, many faiths, many roads that lead to God. And it's a bit like Google Maps. You know when you put in a place, if I were to Direct you to my mum and dad's house, the house that I grew up in, in in North Belfast tonight, and you you might say I've got no idea where Ingledale Park on the Crumlin Road is. So we'd get Google Maps out, and I would put it in, and then you, you hit go, and it gives you like the three different routes, and there's always like the kind of really you know eccentric route that takes you via moorfields, you know, <laughs> like away halfway round the world. It just seems to be the way that Google Maps its algorithm works. And so, how many people see the idea of connection with God? We see this in Scripture, of course. In the Old Testament, we are confronted with the pagan prophets of Baal and that story with Elijah, who their way of connecting with God, their way of coming to God was to, to scream and dance and wheel, to try somehow to, to get God's attention. It was a bit like If you crudely want to put it like this, them kind of waving and go, look, here we are, notice us. In the New Testament, Jesus encounters many times the Pharisees who tried to connect with God through their observance of God's law, which sounds in principle a really good thing and a good idea, but of course they then hedged God's law. Their way of trying to keep the law of God was by keeping well away from its boundaries by adding all of their own laws, and over time that got added to and added to, and they spent their life slavishly following all of these man-made regulations and ordering other people to follow them as their way of getting right with God, of connecting with God. And today we see all around us the confusion that there is about the way in which we are connected to the way in which we come into relationship with God. Social media always shines a light um, on the prevalent attitudes in our society and our culture. And when you look at some of the kind of spirituality stuff that maybe friends and neighbors and relatives of yours, just in the way that I look at some of the stuff that my cousins put on and all the rest of it, and, and, and it proves what G.K. Chesterton said, that when people stop believing in God, They don't believe in nothing. They believe in anything, if you understand the distinction that when God is taken out of the equation, people just go absolutely mad, and they believe all kinds of weird and wonderful stuff. So, that's the world's answer that there are many ways to God, and we should be aware of why people think in that way and the the prevalent uh, cultural pressures that are on them to think in that particular way. And then, of course, we have the Word's answer to this, and the Word of God's answer is that Jesus is the only way. That Jesus cuts through all of this confusion about other roads and other faiths and other paths, and He makes it abundantly clear in that verse that we have read. And if you look at it again, verse 6, He says, "'I.'" And the way, and the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through or except by me. And if we were to propagate that view today, if we were to promote those words, inevitably we would run the risk of being branded as intolerant, as bigoted, as even immoral. That's the incredible thing or things are turned on their head, so that something like this is portrayed as being immoral. What terrible people they are. You know, it used to be that the the church people kind of, you know, who were not Christian people put up with the church. They're harmless. Now, they're the worst in the world. They are the bad people in our society. but this is what Jesus proclaims about Himself. Let's be sure these are the views of Jesus. These are the words of the Lord Jesus. And you'll notice that what He says here is entirely consistent with all that Jesus has already told us in John's gospel and all that Jesus proclaims elsewhere in the gospels. That Jesus never said, I will show you the way, He never claimed to be just a wise teacher or a moral guide, but Jesus points to Himself as the way. He says, I am the way. The way is a person. The way is Christ. And when we discover who Jesus is, when we discover that He is the way and we trust that, then it saves us from all of this experimentation with other religions that you you see other people enter into, it saves us this slavish effort of trying in our own strength to connect with God. It saves us from and it spurs us from believing and doing the weirdest of things, because all we need is Jesus. And so, not taking anything for granted here this evening, I simply stop for one second and I ask you, do you know the way? We ask that question sometimes by people, do you know the way too? But do you know the way? Do you know Jesus in a saving way, in a way that has caused you to trust in Him, to submit your life to Him, to find salvation in Him? And that brings us on to our our next question. If we say that Jesus is the way, if Jesus makes that claim about Himself, where is He the way to? And again, Jesus gives us the answer in the second part of verse 6, hearing the whole verse again, but with particular reference to the, the second sentence. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. Then He continues, and this is the bit, no one comes to The Father, except through me. So, first of all, Jesus is the way to the Father. And if you go back to the beginning of the chapter, chapter 14, you see that in verse 2. Jesus says that he is the way into relationship with God. He puts it like this earlier in the Gospel, in chapter 8, verse 19, he says, If you knew me, you would know My Father also. That's a recurring theme in this gospel. So, He is the way into relationship with the Father, and He is the way into the Father's presence. So, look back at chapter 14 and verse 2. In My Father's house are many rooms, or some of you looking at your Bible will see that as, in My Father's house are many mansions. And if it were not so, I would have told you, and I am going there to prepare a place for you. And remember that when Jesus is going there to prepare a place for His disciples, He is going there via the cross, and that is the means by which He will prepare a heavenly home for His followers, for His sheep, for His disciples through His death on the cross. And I want you to think about the context in which Jesus speaks those words, that it's not actually a sermon. It's not a demonstration of the truth of the gospel. It's not a theological lecture. It's speaking among friends at a meal, friends who are terrified, friends who are sorrowful, friends who are concerned about the future. So these are words of comfort. Ultimately these are pastoral words. When Jesus says what He's about to do, it is a pastoral comfort to His disciples, and it can be a pastoral comfort to you tonight in the struggles that you're going through, in the uncertainties of this week that lies ahead, that your Savior Jesus is saying, look, in my Father's house are many rooms, and I'm going there to prepare a place for you. So, Jesus is the way to the Father, and Jesus is the way to salvation. The means by which we can know the God who has made us. The means by which we can spend eternity in His presence, enjoying being in His presence, sharing in His new creation. And remember that when Jesus says this, He is speaking these words just before His death. And the cross is central to all of this. The cross, as we were thinking about right at the beginning of our service tonight, is the means by which this salvation is secured. As Paul puts it to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse 5, summing up this message of the gospel that Jesus is the way of salvation, he puts it like this, 1 Timothy 2 5, for there is one God, and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. One mediator between us, sinful people, and a holy God. Only Jesus can deal with the problem of your sin. Only Jesus can mediate between you and the God, the holy God who made you, because of His death, because of His resurrection, Jesus is the way of salvation. I don't know if you've ever watched ice hockey on TV. It's the kind of thing that when the Winter Olympics are on, I watch maybe a couple of the games, or maybe you've been to see the the Belfast Giants down um at the SSE Arena. Um, Isn't that where they play down in in Belfast there? But one of the things about ice hockey is that when a a player is penalized, and like, it's a rough sport, there's lots of, you know, getting the the fists in, when there's a bit of a fight and a player is penalized, the player is put in a sin bin, which seems like a very apt description for when you You're involved in misdemeanors in the game. The the player is placed in the sin bin for a period of time, but because there are crucial players on the ice, especially the keeper, there is a a kind of substitute for the sin bin. So that when the keeper is penalized, well, if you don't have a a keeper in ice hockey, that's even worse than not having a keeper in football. That is a a really big thing. And I presume in, in real hockey, that's the same as well, so that someone takes the keeper's place. Someone else goes and sits it out in the sin bin so that the keeper can continue to be in the game. think about what Jesus did at the cross. He was a substitute. He was the one who took upon Himself your sin, He was the one who took upon Himself the punishment that is fitting for you, the punishment that you and I deserve. He didn't just do it for two minutes or or five minutes for a timeout. He did it for eternity so that you and I can be reconciled to God. And so, what this means for us, well, the first verse of this chapter remember, this is a pastoral chapter. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Jesus says, trust in God, trust also in me. And if you have trusted in Jesus, there is this need for us to listen to what He says, to hear His promises, to listen to the Word more than we listen to the world. And I wonder, is that the case with you. And then there's this great calling upon us to be motivated by what we hear to bring this message to others. As we were singing in that wonderful hymn of Wesley, it is our job, it is our task, it's our calling to proclaim, behold, behold the Lamb, to bring that message of God's reconciliation in Christ to Connor, and to bring it to the world. But just as we finish, one final thought for us to consider for now, just as we look at chapter 14 tonight. Sometimes it can be tricky as you read your way through the teaching of Jesus in these chapters to differentiate between what Jesus is saying to disciples in all places at all times, including those who love and follow Jesus here tonight, and what He was saying specifically and exclusively to the apostles who were gathered there in that room that night. And it's important that we we grapple with that and we understand that there are particular things that were specific to those apostles, and then there are things that are for every single one of us who follow and love the Lord Jesus Christ. And so here, two promises in this chapter, and I want us to differentiate right at the end and understand something. There is a promise in verse 16, and as we read this, understand that this is a promise to all believers at all times and all places, that if you love and follow Jesus, if you have been saved through the precious blood of Jesus, this is a promise for you tonight. Verse 16, Jesus says, and I will ask the Father, and He will give you another counselor, or that can be translated, another advocate, the Greek word being paraclete, to help you and to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. There Jesus is speaking about the Holy Spirit, He's making this wonderful promise that we, His followers, will receive the Holy Spirit to help us in our walk with Jesus. That if you like, and you want to describe it in this way, the Holy Spirit is the one who gets alongside us, who puts an arm around us, and who guides us and encourages us in our walk of discipleship. So, that is a promise in verse 16 for all believers, for you, believer in Jesus tonight. But then verse 26. And as we read this, understand that this is a particular promise to the apostles, but that this has real relevance to us tonight, and you'll see what I mean when we read it. So, this is Jesus speaking exclusively to His apostles then, and He says in verse 26, but the counselor Again, the Advocate also speaking of the Holy Spirit, the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said. And so we end where we began. Do you hear what Jesus is saying there to John, the writer of this gospel, to the apostles who either wrote The New Testament were the primary sources that others were to draw upon to write the, the New Testament under the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit. And He says to these people, the Holy Spirit will remind you of everything I have said to you. So, when we talk about God's Word being inspired by God's Holy Spirit, that's not an abstract thing. Here it is being worked out in practice, that these guys, that this man John, was aided by God's Holy Spirit to remember all that Jesus had said to him. So, when John, sitting down to write, and you think to yourself, there's four chapters, four chapters of Jesus' teaching, how does he know? How does he remember that that's what the Lord Jesus said? by the power of the Counselor, the Advocate, the Holy Spirit. And so, these are trustworthy words. And when you hear Jesus say, I am the way and the truth and the life, no one comes to the Father except through Me, that's not a later interpretation. That's not the invention of, of another man or another person. That is Jesus speaking of Himself and saying that to you tonight. Do you know Him, the One who is the way, the truth, and the life? Amen.